0: Welcome to an episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Today's June 1st, 2019, and I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. We've been providing geopolitical research regarding China and the trade war for quite a while. In this episode, we recap Academy's previous coverage of the subject while providing new commentary on the current state of the trade war, with some long term forecasting as well. This episode featured Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, and Lieutenant General Robert Walsh. And now, here's Peter Cher with a summary of Academy's previous commentary on the trade war with China. Peter?
1: Late last year, we were actually pretty positive on developments that we are seeing in trade. One of the things, Spider Marks is very close with General Mattis, and through some of the color of what we are seeing going on there, we saw some of the same things that happening in the trade side, where Lighthizer and Navarro were being pushed out, Trump was pushing towards a deal, Trump wanted one-on-one negotiations with Xi. We saw a lot of good progress being made. And then a bunch of things started occurring that we were hearing and seeing that changed our view in mid to late April to becoming very negative on trade. One of those key elements was we kept bumping into China across the board, whether it was in North Korea, whether it was in Taiwan, whether it was in Venezuela, whether it was Iranian oil. And more and more, we kept hearing, and our generals will discuss a little bit more, about the determination of China as a strategic competitor, which they've been labeled in 2017, that we seem to be taking more seriously. So here as we sit today, I remain very bearish on potential near term outlooks for the economy, on near term outlooks for market, I believe we are going to dig in our heels, we are going to have a real trade war with China, they will escalate it as well, there's going to be a lot of difficulties going back and forth. The one caveat to that, if we go through some short term pain, it may well set us up for a much bigger victory down the road where we really not only get intellectual property, but we see growth for our companies and a real opportunity, particularly in the new technologies and the emerging technologies like 5G. So at that point, I'd like to hand it over to Rachel and she can take a step back and walk you through the strategic competitor and why that is such an important thought process for the administration and why it's framing our current view on trade.
2: Thanks, Peter. Yeah, you laid out the framework really well as far as how the Trump administration has been viewing trade. And I would like to add uh, that our geopolitical intelligence group at Academy has been uh, pointing to some indicators that maybe signal that this would be a more challenging effort as it relates to trade, uh, given some of the national security implications of our relationship with China. General Walsh, I would really love for you to discuss, given your background, some of the indicators that you were seeing early on um, that really showcase this would be a challenging negotiation with China, I remember reading a few years ago how China would invest in emerging technologies here in the United States that would have a national security application. That was one of the first things that the Trump administration tried to stop from happening, this sort of outside investment in these sensitive technologies. Really curious at a macro level how you view the U.S. reconciling strategic competition with China when we have competing worldviews and really where technology fits into that the new world Order that uh, China is challenging.
3: Oh, thank you, Rachel, and uh, and thanks for your lead-in comments, uh, Peter. I, I think stepping back from the strategic position, certainly on the uh, as we look at the different levels of global power of being a global power that the United States is, uh, and China is. You know, I think if you break it down into the areas of diplomacy, economics, military, and informational areas, those four groupings is where we kind of judge a global power. And, and I think from the, certainly the military side uh, over the last few years, I mean, it's been very clear that as we had been focused uh, on the U.S. side on counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had not been putting a lot of investment, research and development or science and technology against uh, you know, high-end competition. We didn't really see the threat. The threat drives where we go and where our investments go. We hadn't really seen that when we uh, started to come out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And with the Trump administration coming in, they really reset us with the new national security strategy and which followed was the national defense strategy. And in that, they called it a new era of great power competition. And with that competition, we certainly looked at China probably as the number one leader in that competition, and also uh, Russia certainly in there also. As we looked at from the military side, the growth that China had made, in many cases, they were starting from a clean sheet design where we were operating off older systems that had been successful at older, uh, and we realized in many cases, China, China had been investing in areas that we had not, to be frank, to work asymmetrically against our weaknesses. They were adding to where they thought their strength should be. And so we saw that as an area where we had to start to wake up and grow this in this new national defense strategy uh, on how we would compete. I think at the same time on the economic side that a lot of businessmen uh, over the years had been seeing a lot of gains in China and thinking in a very short-term perspective of making short-term quarterly-quarterly margin gains uh, and not looking at the long-term strategic competition that was going on. And I think just as of late, um, prior to really these tariffs taking effect, I think a lot of American businessmen are starting to realize, uh, as Peter said, uh, some of the short-term gains we had been making uh, economically with China were now going to be affected long-term uh, strategically in the economic side as well. So the diplomacy side has kicked in. We see the tariffs coming in now and the executive order from the uh, the president limiting that. We see things like Huawei being put on the uh, the entity list and restricting those sales. But overall, where China has been trying to catch up and get ahead of us, was a lot of their uh, market-distorting economic model that that we would call it would be policies that have been inconsistent with free and fair trade, uh, which include their tariffs, quotas, uh, currency manipulation, subsidies, and certainly the ones that have been a lot of interest lately is forced tech transfer and intellectual property theft. And that's why I think a lot of this competition now is driven towards bringing China to the table to be able to, in this competition, to have a constructive and results-oriented relationship with them, where we will cooperate with China where we can, but we're going to also confront them where we must. That's great, General. One thing I think you bring
1: up is you know China and their currency. That's something we've talked about and written about in some of our tea reports that you can find on our website. I do expect China to actually allow their currency to drift above 7, which is going to test you know, our resolve, it's going to be an issue. We've seen China last year, certainly, when we attach 10% tariffs, they devalue their currency by 10%. So I think that's a real issue. I really want to come back and focus in on Huawei. Is the threat real? And how prepared are we to actually replace them or do business without them if that becomes the choice? And are we willing to do that?
3: You know, Peter, if if I could uh, say on this one, is this is an area that um, – From a national security standpoint, we've been looking at for quite a while. And what this means when you are a global power and what that means to be the leader in um, distributing information uh, and being able to help with decision-making across the globe. We have been been the leaders in that as we led, you know, early on with developing the internet. As we start to move into this 5G area, Um, which is exponentially going to increase our ability to share information more quickly. I think it really ties back to if you can compete and win in the information space in today's digital world, you are going to really probably win in most other areas. As we say in the military, command and control is the glue that holds everything together. Well, the command and control, you know, across... Um, the global markets is really how you share data and make decisions rapidly. So the 5G market in moving to that is going to be an area that if you've got that capability and can spread that across the globe, you are now going to be connected in everywhere and have the ability to uh, be the dominant player when it comes to information sharing. That then follows the point where the administration is looking at is, We're seeing some things that China has been doing from a state-owned approach or state approach of using their tech transfer, forced tech transfer from our companies, and also their ability to leverage companies like Huawei that operate on a completely different economic model or uh, reporting model with their government than we do. And the risk that's there that's been identified is intrusion into networks through the larger infrastructure that Huawei could put across the globe. And what I would what I'd say is, if you look at that approach they're taking with the 5G network across the globe, it's very much in line with their Belt Road Initiative or the One Belt, One Road, where they are looking in multiple areas across the globe to be able to move and be they quote their words, the world's factory uh, across the globe in their Made in China 2025 uh, model. So I would say this is just a piece of that as they move forward with this 5G network in their Made in China 2025 uh, model. But it's certainly probably the most important one when you talk about dominating in the information space.
1: Thanks, General. I think one point that you make there that I also try and make over and over is when we talk about negotiation with China China and Chinese companies are effectively one and the same and US and US companies really aren't you know most of our companies are global in nature I believe over 30 percent of earnings in the S&P 500 come from overseas so I think that's something that we always have to account for as we're going through these negotiations and one reason maybe China has had either the upper hand or just can think a little bit differently so that's something that you know I think we all need to continue to remember is the negotiation playing field is slightly different because China and its companies are one and the same. That's something we're dealing with. It feels like we're making a good step. On a very positive note, I, I think what you've been saying is that we can drive some of this technology. And I know you were very involved in DARPA. I don't know if you want to spend a couple of minutes explaining you know, what DARPA is and some of the opportunities that might come out of that given our, you know, renewed emphasis on national security and building and protecting our own.
3: Yeah, sure. Th- thanks for that uh, handoff, Peter. Um, if I could just follow up, though, on that piece of what you said from the state approach. It's very interesting if you look at as part of this information space, a key part of going faster, 5 Gs, network sharing data and information quickly, is artificial intelligence, uh, which is a key area and part of that. The administration put out a new intent or order to uh, grow and move faster in the artificial intelligence space. So we can put a policy out within the government, but now how do all our industry players play in that? In our model, it's going to be a capitalistic market where we give broad direction that this is where we want to go. It'll create competition, and therefore we will grow fast in the artificial intelligence area through our economic competition within our capitalist uh, way of doing business. You reverse that over to the China side and that is the states may be saying along the lines the same things but they can control things so much better uh, where the funding goes to subsidies direction that the companies are going, the companies have Communist Party members reporting back up that are within their organizations so from that state-owned approach when we step back strategically and look at the strategic model which model is going to be better as we go forward? And I think that is really the question. That in most cases, our model over the years has been much more effective to be able to drive that competition in our society or capitalistic way of doing business. But now, when China is a now developed economic competitor like they are today, number two in the nation in the world behind us, uh, and where they are technologically as opposed to where they were in the past. Who will win this competition in this area? So to follow up on where we have been, you know, on trying to develop this capability. So DARPA, which is the defense research product agency for the uh, Department of Defense. And so what they do, DARPA does, is they are ones that are always looking at the real deep science and technology. Even deeper in a lot of ways than what industry would do with their research and development. They're looking at the follow on things. What's next? Uh, in the world and trying to come together for the good of the nation and certainly for the Department of Defense to figure out what that uh, next project would be as they move forward with a commercial partner to try to move forward. So as you tie this together with artificial intelligence moving faster and with the administration saying this is the direction we go, uh, there's some things that DARPA is doing in this area and has been doing in this area. One of the, I think the key things there is trying to go beyond 5Gs and looking beyond that right now, one of the things that DARPA has been working on is um, funding a program that goes beyond 5Gs, Joint University Micro- Microelectronics Program or JUMP. That is funded by DARPA by 40%. And there's a a 60% consortium of companies that are large, small, mid-sized companies that are involved in this consortium to be able to develop what that next technology is going to be beyond Uh, that to be able to go faster. And one of the key players in that also is the Semiconductor Research Corporation which manages the JUMP program. So you can see how that's a consortium of companies tied in with DARPA to be able to go uh, faster in in a lot of ways. Another effort that they've got uh, ongoing is being able to speed up artificial intelligence through and machine learning through new design and with uh, chips. And so uh, the application specific integrated circuits uh, is something that is they are working on to be able to speed up and learn data in real time. And this is being run by DARPA's Microsystems Technology Office, or MTO, and it's under a program called uh, uh, Real-Time Machine Learning. And so that program there is another one to increase uh, high bandwidth applications uh, across 5G networks and also imaging processing. And then probably the third one that I find is interesting that DARPA is working on in this area also, is to we've been looking at a long time of not relying on satellites. How can we go faster with communications? And so as the military is looking at that as we lose satellite connectivity and you bring it down to another level, how can you speed up communications? This applies very much to the commercial market as well. So what they've been working on is uh, digital phased arrays or millimeter wave radars, which is an area uh, that is also being looked at with the emerging 5G cellular networks. So DARPA launched a millimeter wave digital array program to be able to work in that technology area, which where you see in both Cases it applies to the commercial market just as much as military applications. So I think DARPA is a, a area in this information area, uh, and being able to work with semiconductor companies, partnering with them to be able to go faster is a perfect place for a public partnership that uh, that DARP is able to do.
1: Thanks very much, General Walsh. And now I think that really ties back into I guess my current market view and relating all this back to markets is. I think people are supposed to prepare for a longer, more aggressive trade war than people have been talking about. It does sound like the administration has a lot of reasons to dig in their heels. I think there will be some you know, short-term bumps to that, but it is very encouraging to believe that it, we can come out the other side of this with a better platform for our technology, that we can be safe from a defense side is also, you know, continue our leadership role, which may we may have been going down a path where that trajectory wasn't going to be as good for us. So I think I'm longer term still going to be very positive. But that is part of why, you know, short term, let's prepare for this and then see what opportunities this creates and then getting slightly back away from the markets. And I almost hate to go there. But are we supposed to consider this the start of a new Cold War with China or is that too strong of a statement?
3: That, that's a great question, Peter, and, uh, and I think as we look at this, the Cold War, if you define the Cold War of what we had with the Soviet Union, um, in those different areas where I talked about of, you know, the diplomatic, informational, military, and economic side of things, that war was really focused much, much more on diplomacy and military. Obviously, now as we look at China... China is really in many, many ways competing with us globally economically and less so militarily. We're in military, they're still really more of a regional player in trying to keep, really, I think, a strategy of keeping us out. Of, of the Asia-Pacific area and Indo-Pacific area with their military. But globally, through the Belt Road Initiative, we see this as a completely different type of competition. So I would probably argue that the competition with the Soviets was much more military and diplomatic. I would argue with the Chinese, it's much more economic. Um, with that said, I've heard this call that more the bamboo curtain is coming down. Uh, in this, and we can see this trade war ratcheting the economic competition up as we see things going on with the militaries in the South China Sea, but the executive order that the president put on on 5G infrastructure and high tech sharing with China and using Huawei equipment and the uh, the limits on that also putting Huawei on the uh, U.S. Commerce Department's entity list, which is probably even a more important uh, salvo against Chinese tech uh, than probably what we had done with the executive order. Those two things are ratcheting up the competition and I think the intent there is as China had backed away with the trade negotiations with the U.S. and probably I think it, what I'd seen was backed off against 30 of the, the things that we had agreed to. This is a way for the administration to come back in and put the pressure to China to level the playing field so our companies uh, can compete in a fair way. Now, what can happen from this, I think, is where will it go? I think China has more to lose. If you look at the economy and their economy is not doing as well uh, as they'd like, and this is certainly a a factor in keeping the Communist Party in power is the people being happy and the economy working. So I think there's more pressure on them to come to the table in this competition and seek a win coming out of this. But at the other side, you see them ratcheting up discussions in areas like limiting uh, rare earths uh, that would be traded to the United States as part of the trade dispute. That's an area that we've been very, you know, we've kind of lost a lot of those capabilities, and, and as we formed a global economy and we rely very much on China for a lot of the rare earth minerals. So you could see as this ratchets up, uh, we'll have to watch very closely before the G twenty summit that's in Japan coming up at the uh, end of uh, June on where this may go, but certainly China has some cards in their deck also that they can deal.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I think that a lot of market pundits have been dismissive. There's almost this narrative that China needs us more than we need them, and I think that's too simplistic. They need us for some things, we might need them for others. So again, that really ties into why I think this is going to be a more protracted trade war and a little bit tougher than people thought, as really there is going to be supply chains that are going to, have to be disruptive, companies are going to have to work the ways around this, and it's not a negotiation necessarily of equals, but both sides have their advantages and disadvantages, and that's why I don't think this is going to be a quick resolution now that we really are, tying this back to what Rachel had said earlier, treating China as a strategic competitor. It changes the landscape of what we're negotiating. We're not just negotiating a trade deal. We're really negotiating a way to operate with a strategic competitor where there are risks of losing certain things on the defense side to them, and we are going to treat it such. Again, it keeps tying back to me that this will be longer, more protracted. The end game could be very good, but there is going to be some short-term suffering, and it's probably, as General points out, necessary short-term suffering to get back to a trajectory that suits us better.
2: Peter, if I can jump in just to close out, I think you aptly described the current situation as relating to a Cold War. However, anytime you flex diplomatic and military power, there's the opportunity for miscalculation. And I think in the South China Sea, this is where that opportunity is greatest. Uh, General Walsh, as we close out, just would love your viewpoint on the current state of that part of the world, especially as it relates to the growing um, relationship or strengthening relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan and our uh, current navigation through the Strait of Taiwan.
3: Well, thanks, Rachel. You know, I, I think the key thing there is stepping back from a realist perspective, Uh, I think all you'd have to do is go back to 2015 when President Xi Jinping was in the Rose Garden at the White House, and they said that they would not militarize the islands in the South China Sea. And the islands we're talking about were coral reefs that uh, in many cases that they had started to build up. And as we looked at that, then then the language went from we won't militarize them to we're gonna use them for just humanitarian assistance capabilities, To now where we are at now, I think seven of the islands have been built up, four of them have had large runways, and I think the Indo-Pacific commander, Admiral Davidson, said it well when he said these islands have gone from islands of sand to islands of SAMs, or surface-to-air missiles, and surface-to-air missiles to keep the U.S. out of Asia and try to push us out outside of that first island chain. So is anything in competition, we're going to follow what we can, a rules-based order. And I think that's what we're doing. We're following kind of the, the rules of how maritime operations are conducted. And uh, as you see more and more Freedom of Navigation Ops, as the military calls them, by both uh, air assets, you know, aircraft and ships. We're going to continue to do that. And I think the key thing there that we've got to do is the, probably the best thing the United States does is build allies and partners and so the key part there is continuing to engage with the allies that we've got there and partners keep the open lines of communications up with the chinese which we're doing militarily but as we go through the future the more we stay tied to our allies and partners i think the more it's going to make china comply into more of a rules-based order both economically with the terrorists, but also on the military side in realizing that um, they aren't gonna keep us out and we are gonna maintain um, becoming a global power and continuing to operate in the Asia Pacific region or Indo-Pacific region with our allies and
0: partners. Thank you, General Walsh, Peter, and Rachel for that conversation. If you'd like to see some of our previous pieces on this subject, you can find them at academysecurities.com macro. If you'd like to engage with our experts directly, you could email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. As always, I would like to thank our our listeners for giving us the time today. Again, this is your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to sharing more with you again soon.